The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Welcome to worship. I'm Gary, one of the pastors here, and uh, we've got a visitor center out there in the foyer. We'd love to have you stop by if you're new to TBC and uh, meet some of the nice folks that are out there. And uh, we welcome you to uh, our church. John chapter 18, John chapter 18. If you have your Bibles or your apps, turn them on or open them to John chapter 18. Just a reminder, tonight is uh, baptism. We're having uh, echo and queso. I guess that's Spanish for something in cheese. What's, what's the first word? What is it? Like I said, whatever that is, that's what we're having, okay? And uh, are they going to be selling food at 6 o'clock or selling food afterwards? What's the story, Shannon? After we're done. I'm sorry? After we're done with baptism, food truck will be out there and uh, we've, you can purchase some stuff out there. Also bring a dessert to share. If you or one of your family members are being baptized tonight, would you stand you or one of your family members being baptized? We want to say to God be the glory, great things he's done. Back over here, back over here, several over here. Bless you guys. All right, come out and support your friends and family members and hear their testimony of what Christ has done in their lives. Come and see is our series in John. This morning we're in John chapter 18. Let's pray and then we'll look at the word together. Father, thank you. We have declared you, Lord Jesus, as king through worship, as king through the table, and now through the word we declare you king. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Interesting things can happen in courts of law at trials. Dave Tate talked about that last week, Simon. We're going to continue that theme today. We're blessed to have two TBCers who actually serve on the bench in Bell County. Uh, both those men serve as judges, Judge Van Orton and Judge Jones. Jack, are you out there this hour? He usually comes at the 11 o'clock hour, uh, not here. But uh, both those men have interesting stories. A lot of them they cannot share with us. Uh, so uh, if they're interesting to go and sit with, I've sat in both of their courts a couple of times just to watch what they did. They do a phenomenal job. Uh, but you can go online and read actual questions asked by attorneys, and it's quite interesting. Uh, these are official court records. These are questions asked by attorneys and answered by defendants. Here you go. Ms. Johnson, how was your first marriage terminated? By death. And by whose death was it terminated? <laughs> Duh. Right? Uh, here's another one. Actual questions. Do you know how far along you are in your pregnancy? I'll be three months on November 8th. Apparently, then the date of your conception is August 8th. Yes. What were you doing at that time? <laughs> really? You want to know? Uh, here's my favorite one. Doctor, how many autopsies have you performed on dead people? All my autopsies have been performed on dead people. Thank goodness, right? Do you recall the time you examined the body? The autopsy started about 8.30 p.m. and Mr. Dennington was dead at that time. No, he was sitting on the table wondering why I was doing an autopsy. <laughs> I mean, really. Doctor, before you perform the autopsy, you check for a pulse. No. Did you check for blood pressure? No. Did you check for breathing? No. So it's possible the patient was alive when you began the autopsy? No. How can you be so sure, doctor? Because his brain was sitting on my desk in a jar. <laughs> but could the patient have been alive, nevertheless? It's possible he could have been alive and practicing law somewhere. <laughs> oh, my... My apologies, we got a number of attorneys at 10 TBC, my apologies to you. <laughs> Strange things can happen at trials. As Dave Tate pointed out last week, the trials of Christ stand out as being some of the most unfair, some of the most disorderly, 
any legal trials in the history of jurisprudence. I mean, his trial violated Roman law, his trial violated Jewish law, and yet what we find is, and what's amazing is, in spite of this injustice, one man died so justice could be had for all. In spite of that injustice exercised against one man, it paved the way for justice and mercy, for justice and mercy to be extended to all. John specifically, there, there are six trials of Jesus. If you read the, the four gospel accounts and you merge them all together and do a harmony, he was on trial three times before the Jews, three times before the Romans. Six different trials of Jesus. John's gospel focuses in and hones in really on one of those trials more than any of the others, and he actually hones in on one character more than the other characters, and that's Pontius Pilate. And we're going to see in John 18 and 19 that Pilate becomes a focal point, but there's some others involved. We're going to see that there are five groups, either five people or five groups of people that John refers to in John chapters 18 and 19. I'm indebted to Alstar Begg. He's a pastor from Scotland who I listened to in this section. He had five R's uh, reflecting the people in this section. If you look on the outline, we're going to look at five R's this morning. The first one is Rome. When we look at the different characters here, it's Rome. Actually, it's Pilate who represents Rome. Pilate is a Roman procurator. He is the governor of Israel, if you will. The Romans have occupied Israel. They have to have leadership there. And so Pilate is like the governor. He's the governor of that area. If you were with us last week, Dave Tate couldn't find an actual picture of Caiaphas. He said there were no cameras in the first century. So I went online and found a picture of Pilate. It's right there. All you got to do is go to Google. And, uh, you know, I guess they had pictures. Actually, this was from the Passion of Christ. This was the actor that portrayed Pilate. But if you go there, you can find that. You can find Claudia, his wife. It's amazing what you can find on Google. So there's Pilate, and there is Pilate's wife as they were portrayed in that particular movie. I'm going to have to tell Dave Tate about the Internet where he can find these things. But as we look at this, what we see is Pilate begins a series of questions. Jesus is dragged into Pilate's presence by the Jewish leaders. And if you look at the end of verse 28, there's a small detail there. It says it was at Passover time. Now, Passover time, remember that, tuck that in the back of your minds. We're going to come to that a little later. They would not enter the praetorium. That's where Caiaphas and his people were. They were Gentiles because they didn't want to be defiled because it was Passover meal. So, verse 29, Pilate asks a question. They drag Jesus before Pilate, and if he's going to judge him, he's got to know what he's guilty of, right? What is the accusation? What is this crime? What is he guilty of? And so, Jesus looks at the Jewish leader and says, what accusation do you bring against this man? What is he guilty of? What, what are you charging him with? What do you want? Well, John does not record the, he records part of the answer of the religious people, but not all of it. If you look at it in verse 30, they say, if he wasn't an evildoer, we would have not delivered him up to you. Well, specifically in Luke's gospel, Luke says this, they began to accuse Jesus, saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes the payment of taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be Messiah, a king. And so they're looking at Pilate and saying, we've got two problems. And the problem is, number one, he's not paying us taxes. Now, that would really bother the Romans. I mean, the Roman IRS would want their hands in the till that they, as they should. But if Jesus' hands is not, in the, is not, is not paying us taxes, then they've got a problem with him. And secondly, he's claiming to be a king. So what the Jewish leaders recognize, and Dave Tate brought this out last week, if they just came and said, we've got a problem, he claims to be God's son, he claims to be the Messiah, that would be a Jewish problem. The Romans could care less about that. That's a theological issue. But then when they made it, a, they made it an issue with Rome, then they could met out capital punishment because the Jews had no right to do that under Roman law. Only the Romans could met out capital punishment. So the Jewish leaders said, aha, He's not paying us taxes, and he claims to be a king. You've got to go after him. 
You've got to go after him. Now, really, why the Jews wanted to have him killed is because he spoke with authority and claimed to be the Son of God, and through his words and work, proved that he was a Son of God. And so there's this dilemma going on. So they go to Pilate and said, here's the problem. He's not paying us taxes, and he claims to be a king. And so Pilate listens to them, and uh, he turns to Jesus. If you look at verse 33, he brings Jesus into the praetorium. He summons him and says, he asks question number two. The first question is, what is he guilty of? He asks the Jewish leaders. Second question, he asks to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? If you look at the end of verse 33, he asks Jesus specifically, are you the king of the Jews? Now, Jesus often answers a question with a what? With a question. That's what he does here. He looks at Pilate and says, are you saying this on your own initiative or did other people t- tell you about me? Pilate, is this about you and me or is this about them and me? Pilate, are you really curious about who I am or are you somebody's puppet right now? Pilate, do you really want an answer to that for your own sake or you want an answer to that for somebody else? That's really the issue at hand right now. Pilate, is this about you and me or is this about me and them? Well, Pilate recognized this is not Jesus on trial. All of a sudden, it's Pilate on trial. In fact, if you look at the title of the message, that's what I've called it, Pilate Before Jesus. I I read several commentaries in preparation for this. I listened to a few sermons. All those sermons were, most of them were entitled Jesus Before Pilate. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think this is Pilate Before Jesus. Pilate's on trial now. And so he says, is this uh, you saying this on your own initiative? Are they telling you? And Pilate smartly answers with a question as well. I, I am not a Jew. Am I your own nation, your own chief priest to live you up to me? What have you done? I mean, what in the world have you done that your own people would turn against you in this way? And Jesus answered and said, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom of this world, my servants would be fighting for them and I might, be, might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Pilate, you don't understand. I am a king. I do have a kingdom, but it's not here. Pilate, you see the physical. You see the things around you. You see the world of Rome. You see the world of Israel. I want you to know my kingdom is a greater world. It's the world around us. It's the world of people. It's the world of souls. It's not limited to one place. It's everywhere. And not only that, Pilate, you think you're in charge, you've got to listen again. If you drop down to chapter 19, verse 10, Pilate asks him a question. He says, you don't speak to me? You know I've got authority to release you, to crucify you? And Jesus answered and said, you would have no authority over me unless it was given to you from above. Pilate, you think you're in charge. You you think because you're the Roman leader here that that you are the one really in charge. Pilate, what? you to know, Pilate, is that you're not in charge. God's in charge. In fact, you would have zero authority unless God the Father had given it to you. Pilate, you think you're calling the shots. You're just a puppet in the hands of God. You say, Gary, how do you know that? Because if you drop down to verse 32 of chapter 18, it says uh, that, that the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke signifying the kind of death he was about to die. Pilate is merely a puppet in the hands of the living God. He doesn't recognize he's just a small character on the stage of the universe. And although we read about him and although we study him, he's just one small token that's going to be used by God to accomplish his purposes in the life of the Savior. And so here's Pilate. It's like a volley going back and forth in a tennis match. He asks a question, Jesus responds. He asks a question, the Jews respond. He asks a question, it goes, but now Pilate is on trial. Pilate is on trial. And ultimately, Pilate asked the question that philosophers and theologians and people like you and me have been asking for the centuries. What 
is truth. What is truth? If you look down at verse 38, Pilate said to them, what is truth? Now, honestly, I don't know if Pilate is asking that question out of conviction. If he's saying, Jesus, tell me the truth. If he's asking it out of confusion, I don't know truth, but I want to know the truth. Or if he's just shrugging his shoulders and he's doing it nonchalantly, saying, what is truth? We'll never know. Scriptures don't tell us that. Personally, I think it's out of a deep conviction. And I get that because three times in this section, he says, I find no guilt in this man. I've circled that three times in my Bible. Look at the end of verse 38. When he had said this, he went out to the Jews and said, I find no guilt in him. And then chapter 19, verse 4, and Pilate came out again and said to them, behold, I'm bringing Jesus out to you that you may know I find no guilt in him. And then at the end of verse 6, Pilate says to them, take him yourselves, crucify him yourselves. I find no guilt in him. I've circled that all three of those verses, chapter 18, verse 38, chapter 19, verse 4, chapter 19, verse 6. I've circled three times. Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. And I've drawn lines to connect that because I believe Pilate did everything he could to prevent the execution of Jesus. He's saying, you take him, you do something. He's, he, 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 is, he is innocent. He's an innocent man. In fact, it, it's our, it's, we're going to see in a second, it, it's our policy to, uh, during Passover to give you a criminal to free somebody and you can have Jesus. He did not want Jesus killed. But here's the problem. He feared Rome more than he feared Jesus. He feared his own people. You see, if there was a riot or a war in Israel, he would be held accountable to Herod and to Caesar. He would lose his job. He would lose his pension. He would lose his platform. He would lose his position. He would lose his home. He would lose everything. And so to quell the riot and war that was about to take place, if he would not have Jesus crucified, he acquiesced to the Jewish leaders. He was convicted and challenged, but unchanged. Convicted and challenged, but there's no history of change. And I believe Pilate represents a lot of people. People who look at Jesus and see Jesus and recognize he's something special. He's different than every other person that's walked on this planet. In fact, they may recognize like Pilate did, he's innocent. He's not guilty of any of the crimes charged to him. But either out of fear, out of pride, they turn around and walk away from him. So Pilate does that. And he has Jesus crucified. What is truth, Pilate? Jesus has already declared in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the what? I am the, the way, I am the truth, the what? The truth and the life. Pilate, you're standing before truth. You want to know truth, Pilate? Here I am. You want to know truth, Pilate? The only reason... You can say anything, it's because my Father has given you authority. And then Pilate turns to the Jews in chapter 19, and he says something he didn't even realize all he's saying. He has them scourged in verse 1 of chapter 19, thorns of crowns placed on his head by the soldiers, thrust upon his head, purple robe, the color of majesty given to our Savior. They begin to holler, hail King of the Jews, and they give blows to the face of Jesus. They begin to strike him. And Pilate strings a mountain and says, Behold the man. Behold the man. What does that mean? 
mean, what does that mean? Behold the man. Pilate, I believe, was saying words that he had no idea what he was talking about. See, Jesus was indeed fully God and fully man. Behold the man. Well, there was a first man. You remember his name? Who's the first man? Adam. And then we have another man. I, I, I love this quote. It says, Pilate had no idea what he was saying when he says, behold the man. Jesus is the true man. The first man, Adam, sinned and death came into the world. The second man, Jesus, was innocent and died so that death would be conquered in the world. Behold the man. The first man came and died or came and sinned and death entered the world. The second man, the Lord Jesus Christ, innocent, gave his life. Gave his life so that death could be conquered in the world. So what does Pilate do? In Matthew 27, 24, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. He washed his hands and said, he's not guilty. He's innocent. I can't go along with this. But Pilate, you did. You were convicted and unchanged. You were fearful and didn't respond. And so you let Christ be crucified, Pilate. That's what you did. And Pilate stood for Rome. That's who Pilate was. Well, there are a bunch of other people here, so we're going to move on. He was convicted but unchanged. And then there's a group of people I'll call the rabble. The rabble. All the people. These are the people who just five days earlier, when Jesus was on the Mount of Olives, on the back of a donkey, had come from Bethany, right across the, right about four or five miles from the Mount of Olives that led into Jerusalem, and he's gone down the valley, into the, into the Valley of Kidron, and he's gone up to Jerusalem. They were throwing palm branches before him. You remember that story, waving palm branches? We do it uh, on Palm Sunday. It's the triumphal entry of Christ. He's on the glory road, it's called. And as he's gone down there, they're crying out, Hail, Hosanna, King of the Jews. Hail, Hosanna, Son of David. When they call him Son of David, they're linking him to King David. This is our king. This is the one we want to follow. And so uh, just five days earlier, they're crying out, this is our king. And now today they're crying out, crucify him. He's a criminal. And they went from crowning him as king one day to how and crucify him as a criminal just a few days later. The fickleness of the crowd. The fickleness of the crowd. And I believe they represent every one of us. I believe they represent, we tend to be fickle people. We walk with God one day and forget about him the next day. We walk with Christ one day and we tend to forget about him the next day. And before we know it, we spend time in his presence in the word or praying. And we look up and it's been three days, four days, five days, a week, a month. And then we come back, we're convicted of something and we too can be fickle. And I look at this and recognize that was the problem in the nation of Israel. Over and over, God sent prophets to call them back from their sin because they knew him, but then they would move away from him. They began, they valued their religion over a relationship. In fact, in chapter one of Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet does this. He calls the nation to repentance. He says, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? I've more than enough of your burnt offerings, of your rams, of your fattened animals. I have no more pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come before me, you're trampling my courts and Stop bringing your meaningless offerings. God, I thought you made the sacrificial system. What are you saying? He's saying, you come to me with all your religion and all your ritual, but you leave your heart at home. You're fickle. What you love is everything about me, but not me. And to put it in what we do today, you, you love coming to church, but 
Then you leave and you don't think about me all week and you come back. He says, stop it. Just stop it. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. I'm not going to hear you pray anymore. And then if you look where the quotes are about the fifth line down, come now, let us reason together. Let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. He says, come and let's c- c- come and, and confess and get right with me. Quit being fickle. Quit being passionless. As you know, my folks came to live with us a while back, about five plus years ago, and uh, mom passed away almost a couple of years ago now, and uh, dad's with us, and so he didn't like salty stuff, so I bought some lightly salted potato chips. You ever eat a lightly salted potato chip? I pulled them out yesterday. You got to put a frito with it to get a taste of salt on it. I mean, they're nasty. Potato chips aren't made not to have salt on them. And we pulled them out yesterday, and I said, Dad, try this. He loved it. And I said, Dad, that's the nastiest thing around. I mean, passionless. In Revelation 2-4, the condemnation against the church at Ephesus, you do everything right, you're orthodox, but I have this against you. You have left your what? You've left your first love. And to the church at Laodicea, a chapter later, he says, you're neither hot nor cold, you are what? Lukewarm. So because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you right out of my mouth. Literally, the Greek word is vomit. Can't get more graphic than that. Passionless Christianity. When I preached that passage before, a lot of you knew to TBC, I call that rice cake Christianity. Rice cakes are worse than saltless potato chips. <laughs> They're nasty. I don't know. Who likes those things? Let me see your hands. Be honest. Be honest. I, you know my line. Go bite your styrofoam ice chest. It tastes just like a doggone rice cake. I used that a few years, I, a number of years ago, I used that it was just at Christmas time, and I walk up here and there's a sleeve of rice cakes right here at the bottom of this little pulpit, but they're caramel, and there's a note on it, Pastor Gary, try these, you'll like them, they're caramel rice cakes, it's like smearing caramel on your styrofoam ice chest, that's all it is. <laughs> it's passionless, it's bland, it's not exciting, it's not, if you grew up in Louisiana eating crawfish and sucking, yeah, I mean, it, now you go there. Spicy stuff, how's that? That stuff is passionless. What about your walk with Jesus? Are you like a rabble? One day saying, he's my, he's my king, I'm going to follow him. Next day saying, crucify him. I'm going to follow him, I don't want to follow him. I'm going to obey him, I'm not going to obey him. I'm going to do what he wants, I'm not going to do what he wants. And that's what the rabble was doing. Instead of following Christ fully, they followed him with half hearts. They deserted their first love. Then there's a story of a robber here. The story of a robber. Look at chapter 18, verses 39 and 40. But you have a custom that I should release. Pilate's talking. You've got a custom that I would release someone for Passover. Do you wish that I release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. And in fact, if you look at the parallel account in Mark's gospel, it says a man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the uprising. He was insurrectionist associated with murder. If he didn't murder himself, he was an accomplice to it. But we don't want him crucified. We want Jesus crucified. I found a picture of Barabbas too. Here he is. Look at that guy. I don't know why they make guys like that. He's got one eye. That's just not right. 
I didn't notice that till last hour. I mean, I picked that picture out this week, last hour. I'm looking at that and saying, the dude, his right eye is blind. Look at that. It's just nasty. <laughs> Who does that kind of stuff? But that's Barabbas. If anybody could look at the cross that Jesus hung on and said, that man died in my place, it was Barabbas. Anybody. Imagine for a second, they're in a cell. The Roman guard comes up to the cell door and he says, which one of you is Barabbas? Or I imagine, I don't know if you know who Ed Ogeron is. He happens to be the coach of the LSU Tigers. You ever hear that guy talk? He sounds like Oscar the Grouch or somebody like that. He goes, wait, one of you Barabbas, come out. Barabbas. That's the only coach we can understand if you're in South Louisiana. I mean, Cajun accent. Barabbas, which one is you Barabbas? Silence. Barabbas saying, I'm not going to play your games. Barabbas. A little shuffling of the chains. He's already been scourged. Come out, Barabbas. It's your lucky day. They want to kill the king of the Jews and you're free. And Barabbas just sits there, right? I said, come out. And the cell door flies open. And Barabbas says, I don't want to get out of here. I want to stay in prison. I don't want to get out of here. I need to buy my way out of prison. See, Barabbas represents every one of us who's ever been in bondage. And that's every one of us. Because a savior became a substitute. And that day, Barabbas woke up with a death sentence. And by that night, he was set free. That's the gospel. You get a savior who died in your place, gave his life for you. And just as Barabbas could look at that cross and say, that man died for me, we can do the same thing. Barabbas is a story of substitution, of a Savior who gave his life for you and me. Then there's the religious leaders. They become blasphemous haters of Jesus. They can't stand Jesus. Jesus has exposed their hypocrisy. He's exposed their legalism. Many of their people have started following him, and so they're jealous of him. You ever been jealous of somebody? They're jealous. I'm jealous of guys that can eat all they want and never gain weight. I gained three pounds chewing an idea at my age. They're jealous. They're jealous. They can't stand it. He's claiming to be the great I am, the son of God. He has cleansed our temple. He's confronted the hypocrisy and legalism. He's claimed to be the fulfillment of their prophecies. He's broken their laws, not God's law, but their laws. He's embarrassed them before his own, their own people. He's proven through his words and works who he is. And they are threatened and they're afraid and they want him to die. And they'll do anything for it. And the scriptures show us how far they fell. Because in chapter 19, if you go all the way to verse 15... They cried out, away with this man, away with this man, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but God. Not what they said, though. We have no king but Caesar. And I don't know if God can shed tears, my friends. But if he can, I'm sure he bowed his head and wept. These are the people of the covenant. 
the apple of his eye, the leaders of his nation. And they hate the Son of God so much that they say, we have no king but Caesar. Rejecting the Father, rejecting the Son because of their hatred. And finally, we have a Redeemer. We have a Redeemer. I get moved to tears every time I think about this. Because you've got all these people that hate on Jesus and say he's innocent, but we're going to kill him anyway. And you go to verse 16 and it says, So he then delivered him, Jesus, to them to be crucified. An innocent man giving his life for everybody. Chuck Colson writes these words, All through human history, as far back as recorded time and doubtless before, kings, priests, tribal chiefs, presidents, and dictators have sent their subjects into battle to die for them. Only once in human history has a king not sent his subjects to die for him, but instead he died for his subjects. Isn't that a great quote? Everybody else sends their soldiers into battle for them. But this king went to battle for his subjects. This is the king who introduces the kingdom that cannot be shaken because this king reigns eternally. Amen, amen, and amen. That's our king. That's our king. The path to the cross was littered with those who hated the Savior, but he never hated back. In fact, what he did is he gave his life for him. He would cry from the cross, we'll see next week, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. He became your substitute, my substitute. Worship team, would you join me? Come on up. This is a man named Maximilian Colby. I shared his story a few years ago, maybe some of you remember it. Maximilian Colby was known as the Saint of Auschwitz. Auschwitz was a terrible place. It was a place that the Germans uh, murdered over two million Jews in. We were just at Yad Vashim, which is the Jewish Holocaust in Jerusalem. It's one of the most moving places I've been in my whole life. When you walk through Yad Vashim, this Holocaust museum in Jerusalem, looking at all the stuff that's there and seeing all these Jews have been murdered, you, you just weep as you go through it. A day wouldn't do justice. We only have two hours when we go through. But this man, Maximilian Kolbe, was known as the Saint of Auschwitz. He was a Franciscan priest. He was arrested in April of 1941, sent to Auschwitz. He was known as the Saint of Auschwitz because he would often give his food, share his food, which was minimal or hardly anything, if you know the story of what Jews were fed then. And uh, he, he was given just a little bit to eat, but he would share his food. He would also share his bunk with men who were dying. And he was loved and respected by his fellow people in Auschwitz. There was a day, one of the German laws was, if anybody escaped Auschwitz, 10 Jews would die in their place. There was a day in August of 1941 when one Jewish man escaped. The next morning at roll call, the commandant called 10 Jewish men to come forward. They knew what it meant. What it meant is they'd be placed in a separate dorm where they would not be fed or they would not be given anything to drink and they would starve to death. One of the men dropped his knees. His name was Zyganowicz, Kajanowicz, his last name. He was Polish. Polish Jew dropped his knees and he began to scream, I've got a wife and children, wife and children, please don't do this. There was movement 
among the prisoners, which was never supposed to happen. It was Maximilian Colby, this guy. Probably because he was known by everyone, the commandant made an exception to let him come forward. When he came forward, he said, I will die in that man's place. In an unbelievable response, the commandant agreed. He let Gajanowitz go back into the line and sent Colby with the other nine men into the prison to starve to death. Colby was the last of the ten men to die. In fact, he didn't starve to death. They eventually put a shot of phenol into his heart to kill him. In August of 1941, he died for a man he didn't know. Dijonowitz had never met him before. He knew about him, but had never met him. If you read the story of Dijonowitz from that day forward, on that day in August, I think it was the 14th of August, Dijonowitz survived Auschwitz, and every year on the anniversary of the death of Maximilian Kolbe, he went back to his grave in Auschwitz and placed a bouquet of flowers. One man dying for another. Let me tell you a greater story. That's a moving story. I can barely get through it. Here's a greater story. One man dying for you. An innocent man dying for us. The Savior of the world giving his life on your behalf. All hail King Jesus. He's the Lord. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And so here's how I want us to conclude. You need to do business with Jesus. For some of you, you're under conviction right now. Your heart is beating out of your chest. Pastor Gary hadn't taken his one good eye off of me the whole time we're here. I hear that all the time. I want you to come get on your knees. Maybe to trust Christ for the first time. Or maybe you recognize you've been fickle and you need passion. You're tired of rice cake Christianity. And you want to walk with the Savior more intimately. We're going to worship him. And I invite you, if you want to do business with him, to come and do that as well.